Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. This past week was Christmas, and of course, there was tons of gifts and toys being handed out. But there's one thing you should be aware of. Collectible toy values are on the rise. Matthew Kitchen, gear and gadgets editor for The Wall Street Journal, joins us to talk about the rising collectible market and the 20-year rule. That means start looking for your Power Rangers and those Harry Potter toys. We'll also tell you what the holy grail of toys is so that you can start looking and see if maybe you have one. The 20-year rule is actually something I also uh, learned about when I was reporting this. It makes sense in that when you were a kid, you play with a toy, you love that toy, you eventually forget about that toy. 20 years later, you have money, you have maybe a job, a relationship, everything else you want in life, but you've forgotten about that toy. And so people oftentimes are oddly buying their childhood back by going back and trying to remember all the things they had. So how big is the potential to make money on this stuff? You know, when you're a kid, obviously, like you said, you, you know, you beg your parents and it's a waste of money at some point. And now that we're older, we can buy these things for ourselves. We want to collect and we want to have fun with them. But what's the market like? The market is kind of what you make of it. It's really difficult to make money buying and trading toys unless you make it a full-time job. It's kind of like everything. A lot of times, the better thing is just to kind of choose what you like. If you're a He-Man guy, if you're a Batman guy, if you're a Superman guy, just buy the things that you like and kind of surround yourself with the with the things you enjoy. And occasionally, if other people like them, they'll rise in value as well, and, and you can trade them off and sell them however you want at that point. But, you know, a lot of the guys I talked to, it was all about the collection. It wasn't really about the money. Even the guys who owned comic stores and did actually make a living off of this, a lot of the times it was kind of secondary to the fact that they just had all these things that they like surrounding themselves with. We always hear phrases like mint condition in the box. Why is the box such an important thing with collectibles? The fact that the box kind of guarantees the condition of the toy is obviously important. But what was really interesting that I came across when I was reporting this out was that James Gallo, who's the owner of Toy and Comic Heaven in Willow Grove, Pennsylvania, who's also an avid collector himself, had kind of explained that the box is the thing that gets thrown away. You rip it open to play with the toy. And so the box is actually as rare or more rare than a lot of the rare toys because they just get discarded. And 20 years later, you know, you have a toy, but you don't have a box. There is as much or more nostalgia tied to the box. You know, it's about Christmas morning. You maybe didn't get that thing you want. And all of a sudden your parents are like, oh, what is this surprise gift we found behind the sofa? And they bring it out and you shred it open. And the first thing you see is that Optimus Prime or whatever it is staring back at you through the plastic. And that becomes a very important moment sometimes much more so even than actually bashing the toys together. Here's the big question and everybody perk your ears up right now. (laughs) What toys are heating up right now? What are the things that are getting hot and increasing in value? One of the toys that's, that's heating up right now that was really interesting to me was these vintage Star Wars figures from the Droids animated series. And I don't know if you're familiar with this. I certainly wasn't. No. And I'm a Star Wars nerd myself. But it was a 1985 animated series starring R2-D2 and C-3PO together on their own adventures. Um, it lasted... <laughs> oh, so that sounds very exciting, actually. <laughs> it was very weird. <laughs> Uh, At best, I'm sure it's on YouTube somewhere. It only lasted 13 episodes. I can't imagine why. And so the toys from that 
series have kind of just sprung up oddly again recently as something that people are kind of chasing, partially because they're so rare and obscure, but also just because they're unique, they're interesting, and they're just kind of this untapped part of the Star Wars universe. Um, you know, other things, Power Rangers are huge right now because we've hit that 20, 25 year mark. I had all the Power Rangers. Oh I man, was, uh, I had a ton of these things, <laughs> but I have no more boxes. I probably have like an old crate full of Power Rangers toys that are not well kept. So yeah, <laughs> they're not worth anything, but I had the same thing. I had a ton of these things. Yeah, I, that was the one that stuck out to me the most. It's like, man, that, that could have been something. My Little Pony bronies and everybody else are, are bringing those back. <laughs> Harry, and, Harry Potter was an interesting one. Yeah, Harry Potter is interesting because that's another one that's hitting that 20-year point. There are a lot of toys, and, and I, you know, I'm not a Harry Potter person. I, I never really read the books. Um, I was never really a fan of the movies. But people who like the toys and who played with them as kids are reaching that age. Sorry to, to kind of diverge, but another part about this is the relevance. Harry Potter has been relevant for 20 years. Right, right. It's not just that it existed and then it came back. Harry Potter has, you know, we've had our movies, we've had our books, we've had our toys, we've had a spin-off series at this point. And so that that amount of relevance really matters to the toy being important as well because it's not only rising and falling in value, it is just consistently going up because the toy and the, and the property, the IP never goes away. What are ones that we should not waste our time on? You know, the Funko Pops. The Funko Pops are really losing value for a couple of reasons. One is just that there's no play value there. You just kind of put them on a shelf and you stare at them and you're like, well, those are nice. Right. And then you walk away. Uh, the other part is that there's just too many of them. Yeah. They're, they're making them for every single genre and movie and everything. There's this weird balance with collecting. When there's too many of something, you just can't collect them all. So you feel defeated. And when there's too few of something, you can't collect anything. So you feel defeated. And so there really is kind of an interesting groove that these toy lines have to hit to kind of catch that wave and really blow up. Last question I have for you. What is the holy grail of collectible toys? And it was funny because uh, reading your article, it's a death trap is really the most highly sought after thing. Yeah, the, the kind of holy grail, the white whale, kind of whatever you want to call it, is this Boba Fett toy that came with this rocket firing backpack. And apparently because it was a choking hazard, it never got released. Yet somehow these prototypes kind of fell out into the world and, and these people pick them up and, you know, they trade at astronomical rates. The last one that went on sale, I believe it was in March, sold for more than $86,000. The fact that it's Star Wars obviously really elevates it. The fact that it's Boba Fett, I think, elevates it. And the fact that it is just this incredibly rare and obscure really sends it out of the stratosphere. Matthew Kitchen, gear and gadgets editor for The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Also still in the Christmas spirit, every year, millions of Americans head to Christmas tree lots to pick out that perfect tree. But have you ever stopped to wonder how that tree got there? Most likely not. What you may not know is that researchers are working to bring you better trees every year and avoid the dreaded coning. For more on this, we spoke to Robbie Gonzalez. He's a senior writer at Wired for the science of growing the perfect tree. It's interesting. A lot of the things that people pay attention to when they go to pick up trees, they are actually the same kinds of things that 
scientists think about when they are trying to decide the best ways to raise trees in large numbers on Christmas tree farms and also to breed them, so looking at the genetics of those trees. And there are things like, as you said, the color of the tree. There's something called needle retention, which is literally how many needles stay on the tree as opposed to how many of them wind up covering the gifts underneath. There's things like the color. And then, of course, the overall health of the tree. These are all things that some scientists can actually test for. I spoke with one researcher his name is Bert Craig, and he's a forest scientist at Michigan State University, and he does work on something called cold hardiness. Basically, how resistant are trees to really, really cold temperatures, the kind of thing that can cause them to become less healthy or even die over the course of eight, nine, ten seasons, which is the typical age of a Christmas tree. And that experiment actually involves plucking little sprigs from experimental trees and sticking them in a freezer and slowly lowering the temperature of that freezer and pulling out sprigs every few degrees Celsius, and then seeing at which point they start to turn color. And the idea is, if you find trees that can resist colder temperatures, then the farmers who grow these trees in large numbers can produce better yields, better looking trees, and get you a better looking tree every year. It takes about 10 years for a tree to fully mature that you can take to a lot so you can buy and put in your in your home. And these trees are growing about one foot per year, and obviously going through the seasons, going through the cold climate, and they need these resilient trees to be able to last that long. If they're not making it that long, then they're just useless and you're wasting time and resources. Another one that they uh, really focus on, too, is uh, how you fertilize these things. And it was uh, interesting that you noted in the article that old farmers used to over-fertilize these things. And it have a, a number of different effects where it would affect the groundwater and whatnot. And through these kind of analysis, we're able to figure out, you know, you don't need to fertilize them that much, fertilize each tree, and you save time, money, and uh, don't affect the groundwater that way. Talk to us about coning. This, and this involves pine cones growing on the tree, which in Christmas trees is a bad thing. You don't want pine cones on this tree. So talk to us about the process with that. Coning is literally just like it sounds, the appearance of pine cones on a tree. Now, in nature, fir trees, for example, they typically start showing cones after they hit about 15 years old. But on farms, and what's interesting is researchers aren't even really sure why this happens, but in farming scenarios, fir trees will sprout cones much, much earlier than that, after maybe three or four years. The thing is, these cones do not what's called persist. Every season, they sprout, they mature for a little bit, and then they dry out and they shatter and they get all over the tree. And that doesn't look good. If you get a tree with lots of cones on it, people don't buy it. It's a wasted tree from an economic standpoint, from a tree farmer's standpoint. That's a tree they can't use. So coning is a problem. A bigger problem is how you address it. So a typical fir tree can sprout hundreds of cones every year. A big one might sprout a thousand. If you're looking at fir trees and something like 90% of fir trees grown commercially in the U.S. experience coning, that's millions of trees sprouting hundreds to thousands of cones apiece. You're looking at potentially billions of cones that need to be plucked by hand every year. That's a huge time cost, right? right? That's a huge expense for these farmers. That's so crazy. I don't think anybody really realizes that that's part of what goes into growing these trees and, and making sure they're ready for that Christmas tree lot. That is so much work. It's so much work without anything. It's just, it's incredible. Finally, just to move on real quick, talk to us about this other thing called the Collaborative for Germplasm Evaluation Project. And this is, yeah, yeah. I mean, this is all about getting new trees so that they don't get affected by something called root rot. We've been talking a lot so far about what are called culture techniques. Basically, how can you adjust your farming practices to improve the output of your tree? One thing we haven't talked about yet is the genetic side of things. And on the genetics front, 
One of the most ambitious projects related to Christmas trees is this project called COFERGE, and that's short for Collaborative Fir Germplasm Evaluation Project. And that is this multi-institutional nationwide effort to identify, among other things, new species of fir tree for the Christmas tree market. Between 30 and 40 species of fir trees around the world. The exact number depends on who you ask, and I won't get into that. But only a small handful of those are currently grown for the North American Christmas tree market. And two of the most popular trees are particularly susceptible to this thing called root rot. It's caused by a water mold, and a tree that comes down with it can die in a matter of days. So it's a big problem in America's biggest tree-growing states. But in Turkey, there are fir trees that are resistant to root rot. So right now, one of the goals of the Coferge project is to grow Turkish fir trees in Michigan, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Washington, I think Oregon's in there. I'm probably missing a couple. But one of the goals of the project is to see how adaptable these trees are in different U.S. climates. And the goal is to find, you know, if this tree can be resistant to root rot and it can survive in North American climates, maybe we could have a new kind of Christmas tree down at the lot. All those states you mentioned, the top three growers of trees are Oregon, Michigan, and North Carolina. So yeah, it would be very beneficial for them to get something like that where they're saving trees. They don't have to plant as much. Uh, the trees will last longer for them. So it's just a- incredible to think of how little we really think as consumers about this stuff, but there's so much going behind it. And you really got to think these are all trees are 10 years in the making. So by the time you're picking it, this has already been a decade in the making for you. Robbie Gonzalez, senior writer at Wired. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. One of the fun stories we covered a lot this year happened to be aliens. They've been in the news a lot recently. There was that big internet campaign to storm Area 51. Let's see them aliens. That got a lot of attention. There was also a story from the Navy where they confirmed the authenticity of declassified videos that show unidentified aerial phenomenon. That's the new term they use for UFOs. But Gallup conducted a poll about Americans' thoughts on UFOs. A lot of Americans are skeptical, but they say that the government knows more than they're letting on. For more on this story, we spoke to Lydia Saad. She's the researcher at Gallup. So Gallup has asked about UFOs for a few decades now on and off. And, you know, it's a topic that some people might think is beneath Gallup, you know, but we actually think it's a very serious issue of what America it taps into what Americans think is going on in the, in the universe and uh, all sorts of important things. So we ask people questions about whether they have seen UFOs, whether they believe they're real, whether they think the government is hiding anything, all sorts of things that are related to this Area 51 phenomenon. And two thirds in the United States say that the government knows more than they're saying about UFOs. And that leads us kind of right into what this whole, um, you know, Storm Area 51 thing was about. Uh, Obviously, it was a hoax started by a guy, but it captured the imaginations of so many people that, you know, really do believe that the government knows more than they're letting on. Sure. So it definitely is tapping into that skepticism about government. Um, and it, 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 for the record, I mean, we find uh, two thirds today saying that the government is hiding something. We asked in 1996 about the same percentage said that then. So this is a perennial belief. It's yeah. not like suddenly Americans are concerned. But there's this there's a baseline skepticism toward the government that makes this kind of a um, a program uh, appealing to a certain segment of the public. Now that's uh, dealing with how many people think the government uh, is letting on to how many, what about individuals, people, how do they feel about UFOs? Well, that's where it gets interesting. So yes, two thirds say the government is hiding something. 
And we also ask a question, you know, do you think when people see UFOs, they're seeing something real? And a majority say yes to that. But then when we say, do you think that UFOs are actually alien spacecraft visiting Earth from other planets or that all UFO sightings can be explained by something else such as human activity or natural phenomenon? And there we get only a third, 33% saying that some UFOs are actually alien spacecraft. Most of the rest say it's something else, something that can be explained by human activity. And then you get a residual, you know, a little bit are unsure. So far fewer people out there actually believe in UFOs and think the government is hiding something. Piggybacking off of that, there was this recent report about these three allegedly declassified videos showing U.S. Navy pilots trailing some unidentified flying objects. These videos are a little older, but there was a spokesman for the Deputy Chief of Naval Operations for Information Warfare who actually confirmed that these videos are authentic. They were not supposed to be released. There was some flub in paperwork or whatnot, but it shows what they call unidentified aerial phenomenon. That's kind of their new term for UFOs. So there is some quote unquote evidence about this. So that's why I love these topics in these conversations because they lend themselves to your imagination going wild. You guys at Gallup were learning exactly what part of the country also experiences or thinks they see these alien spacecraft more. It's happening more on the West Coast than it is on the East Coast or in the South. So we can break out our respondents by four regions of the country, East, Midwest, South, and West. So the West is more than just the coast. It would include Arizona and Utah and some of these places where these military installations are. And there we find 41% in the West saying that some U.S. UFOs are alien spacecraft. That compares with only 27% in the Midwest and about a third in the East and the South. So you have four in 10 people in the West holding that view, which is notable. And then they are also more likely in the West to say they have personally seen something they believe was a UFO, 20% versus closer to 12 to 15% everywhere else. So the West is definitely more of a hotbed for UFO <laughs> theories. Yeah. I, I live on the I live on the West sides also. So that's, a, that's <laughs> an interesting. I'm going to have to start surveying all of my friends to see what they come up with. One of the other interesting uh, things that you guys found were Americans with no religious affiliation are more likely to put stock in UFOs, 40% saying they believe in some type of alien visitors. A little bit. So 40% with no religion, but it's still about a third of those who are either Protestant or Catholic or some other Christian religion, which some might say would be contradicting religious beliefs, but you've got a third of Christians saying they think some UFOs are alien spacecraft, but yes, it's higher among the non-religious at 40%. This is one of those conversations that is really never going to go away. People's imaginations are always going to take them away on this thing. Obviously, movies and TV help with all this. Lydia, give us the bottom line on what you guys learned in this latest survey. So clearly there is an underlying percentage of the public that believes that UFOs are real foreign visitors, the foreign in the uh, UFO version of the word. And that's okay. I mean, there's reason to believe it. I think these stories about the government videos are fascinating to read about. But you have just as many people who say, yeah, the government's hiding something, but these aren't really aliens. You know, the government's probably covering up military secrets or they aren't sure and they don't want to alarm the public. So there's just as many people who are skeptical of the government, but for other reasons. And then you have another third who are like, what's this all about? I don't believe in aliens. The government's not covering anything up. You're all crazy. So that's how we kind of break down camps of thirds on UFOs, if that makes sense. <laughs> Lydia Saad, researcher for Gallup. Thank you very much for joining us. Appreciate it. Anytime. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. 
leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.